Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 1st, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the FIFA indictments, Sepp Blatter's re-election as FIFA president, and whether it is or is not possible that the International Soccer Organization will reform itself. We'll also be joined by Puck Daddy's Greg Wyshynski to discuss the hockey playoffs and the Stanley Cup Finals matchup between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Chicago Blackhawks. And we'll talk about Bryce Harper's historically great season, or at least historically great two months of a season, Uh, whether the 22-year-old Washington Nationals outfielder will become the kind of star that transcends his sport, and what's going on with his teammate, the struggling Steven Strasburg. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Did you notice my alliteration, Stefan? I did. I also noticed you co-opting It Is Not Possible. I am the president of everybody, Josh. I thought it was more of an homage, but... Okay. Um, Co-opting. Jeez. Yeah. Whoa. Touchy. Touchy. It was a touchy week for Sepp. <laughs> it was. We'll get to that. We, we will. Uh, with us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hello. And I, I, sh- I want, I g- I'm going to insist that we call that a Washington segment, Good Nat, Bad Nat. Okay. I like okay. that. Yeah. I, I and, like you know, a couple it. of I them like are hurt, so. You got some theme music for us? Good Nat, Bad Nat. Good Nat, Irene. Well, a lot of people request I sing as often as possible. <laughs> How do you feel about, in Little League, the phenomenon of granting, saying a kid got a hit, even when it was clearly an error on the other team? Well, what ages are we talking? Around the ages of, of your children. You have to norm for, remember, the definition of an error is what play can be made with normal effort. And when you're talking about (laughs) eight-year-olds, like picking up a ball and throwing it to first and having that first baseman squeeze the ball, that's better than average. That's superhuman. So I would say an error would be if if there's a slow tag and the kid attempting the tag it just pops out of his glove and and it's not it's not like a runaway freight train the kid just whoopsies or a kid tries to step on the base and like runs all around but other than that anytime you attempt a throw in the infield it can't be an error I say as someone who batted 750 in second grade uh-huh. I think liberal scoring is crucial to <laughs> a little league 750 with no hits. I, was I think about 24. the same thing about no, the I actually <laughs> I was I was good. That was the that was the peak of my athletic career, Josh. All right, we're trying the patience of our listeners here. My average plummeted to 500 in third grade. Um in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will parse every single at bat of Stefan's second grade little league season. Mm-hmm. If we have 
Any time left over, we'll do a preview of the NBA Finals between the Cavs and Warriors. Uh, to hear this segment and other bonus content on podcasts like The Culture and Political Gab Fest, you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. If you want uh, to try out Slate Plus before you buy it, sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus, uh, and that'll get you a two-week free trial of the Slate Plus experience. Um, last week, I was not here. Was I in Switzerland? Maybe. Maybe not. Um, but shortly after the Hang Up and Listen podcast went off to the printers and was inscribed on wax cylinders, as we do each week, the U.S. Department of Justice charged five corporate executives and nine officials from the world soccer governing body FIFA with racketeering, wire fraud, and money laundering. Among those charged were the current and past presidents of CONCACAF, the North and Central American and uh, Caribbean Confederation that the United States is a member of. Over the weekend, former CONCACAF president Jack Warner defended himself by citing an Onion article headlined, FIFA frantically announces 2015 Summer World Cup in the United States global soccer tournament to kick off in America later this afternoon. FIFA president Seth Blatter, who was not indicted as part of this big sweep, did a similarly laughable job of claiming that little old him, sorry, little old him had nothing to do with, with anything here he is speaking at the 65th FIFA Congress. I know many people hold me ultimately responsible for the actions and reputation of the global football community. Just to be clear, that's Seth Blatter, not me. It's a decision for the hosting of a World Cup or a corruption scandal. We, or I, Cannot monitor everyone or you. all of the time. Or us. It is just not if possible. If people want to do wrong, to monitor everyone all of the time, they will also try to hide it. I love simultaneous translation from but Seth it to must Seth. Fall <laughs> to me to bear the responsibility for the reputation and well-being of our organization, and to find a way forward to fix things. I will not allow the actions of a few to destroy the hard work and the integrity of the vast majority of those who work so hard for food. And by vast majority, he means about 20 percent. Um, as Barry Pachesky described it in Deadspin, Stefan Blatter, 17 years in office have been marked by financial irregularities, shady backroom dealings, fraud, graft, cronyism, sexism, dismissal of racism and homophobia, resistance to technological change, lack of transparency, irreparable rifts between member states and numerous and toothless ethics investigations. And yet the sportocrat to end all sportocrats was reelected last week to his fifth term as FIFA president. There's now a huge range of possibilities for what happens next. Uh, Michel Platini, the head of the European Soccer Federation, UEFA, has threatened to boycott the World Cup if Blatter won. We'll now see. I mean, it seems most likely that that's going to be an empty threat. Um, there's now the question of whether the men charged by the DOJ will be extradited to the U.S. And there's a separate investigation going on uh, by the Swiss into the bidding for 2018 and 2022 World Cups, which were awarded to Russia and Qatar respectively. So, Stefan, what's going to happen? What do you think the next steps are going to be? Well, I think that the hope among a lot of people is boycott. I don't think boycott is that realistic. I think far more practical, I mean, practical, I mean, far more desirable, maybe, approach to this would be a complete pullout from FIFA. There are 51 countries in UEFA. Some of those are going to stay in FIFA's pocket. Russia, Spain is completely in the wallet of Qatar at this point. I don't see them pulling out. They voted for Blatter. France, the French Federation voted for Blatter in spite of the fact that Platini is French uh, and runs UEFA. But if you took a core of you know, 40 plus UEFA countries and you added some South American countries who are also disgusted, Argentina and others, and if you added the United States and Canada and Mexico, and if you added Japan, and a handful of other Western countries, Australia, you would have a core of economic might and political might um, that, that could start a separate, cleaner football organization for the world. And if you denude FIFA of its lifeblood, which is the money, by exerting pressure on at least the Western sponsors, Anheuser-Busch, Visa, McDonald's, 
you know, the big companies that basically fund this plus the television networks, then you've made a start. It would not be easy. And the main reason it would not be easy to do this as logical as this might seem. And Nate Silver argued this on 538. It was a pretty good argument that the OECD countries could be the leaders of this. And then a, a Tufts professor had a piece in the Washington Post, Daniel Dresner, that I thought was really the most cogent analysis of how this is plausible. The hard part is that the corruption in FIFA touches everybody. Look, there were two Americans indicted. And it's very easy for Blatter and his cronies and the developing countries that are so dependent on the FIFA coin and have created a, a really sophisticated money laundering system to pass the money from the sponsors and television broadcasters through FIFA to these small country federations that they're not going to be interested in any of this. And, you know, so the problem is that there's corruption everywhere in the sport. It is ingrained in this organization and that for every department of justice um, indictment, there are going to be people in Europe or in other countries saying the, the corruption is everywhere. We, you know, we have Americans that are guilty. They're just as bad as everyone else. The English, it's a conspiracy. We already have seen this. So it's going, it, it ends up being a, a public relations argument among these countries, and it devolves into a, a biased first world versus a subjugated, exploited third world. Stefan, it is not plausible. It's just not plausible. And reform, here's what's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And it's just because we could never expect an international organization's ethics to be more ethical than the member states or the member nations. Now, FIFA does have a problem uh, from the perspective of the West or people who want ethics reforms in that Montserrat and these tiny little principalities have a vote, but they have a vote. And I don't see them. I don't see you taking away a vote, stripping a vote. I don't see you doing that. That seems undemocratic. I don't see who's going to uh, want to vote for that, ha who votes themselves out of existence as a means of reform. So because of that, this is the system we have to deal with. And, you know, I do think that if you look at international relations, there's a little naivete, maybe not on your part or on the Tufts professors, but, you know, people who follow sports and maybe don't follow soccer that closely and aren't expected maybe to follow international relations that closely. This is what happens. Look who's on the Security Council. That's a little more important than FIFA. That doesn't get reformed. Look who's, in, look who's in the United Nations. Look what it takes to get bounced out or to reform an international organization. There's one set of countries, richer countries, you know, corruption. You have to be a certain amount of rich to even regard it as corruption. It's just the way of life for a lot of people. Sepp Blatter knows how to work the system. I would also say that I think the IOC is, in a way, a cleaner organization than FIFA. One of the reasons is, you know, which countries have the number of votes. But there's no bona fide reformist movement, like, already there. Like, Dick Pound is with the IOC, and other delegates are with the IOC. And I even think the current president of the IOC, there's reason to be optimistic that he's on, you know, more of the reformer sides. Who are the reformers within FIFA? You had Prince... Ali, who kind of put his hand up, but it's not like everyone said, oh, yeah, this guy has, you know, a 20-year history of trying to really push changes. So uh, it seems ad hoc right now that we're like, finally, some corruption is exposed. And the reason we're saying that is there always was corruption. Just two World Cups were awarded to countries that shouldn't have, shouldn't have gotten it. When there was corruption, giving the World Cup to... Japan and Korea or South Africa or whatever, people said, yeah, well, that's okay. We like the World Cup being in South Africa. So I don't think anything's going to change. Well, FIFA is not a static organization. Bladder represents a continuation of a change that happened with João Havelange, the Brazilian, in which there was a coalition formed between these smaller countries, third world countries, Africa, Asia. Um, and if you talk to someone who knew that FIFA was corrupt and that it was run by this, like, Swiss guy who, you know, we make fun of his accent, who sounds kind of like a Bond villain. I think people who don't really know about the inner workings of FIFA probably wouldn't imagine that his base of power is based on, like, giving money to develop, you know, football federations in small, um, you know, third world countries in island, you know, tiny island nations. And it's an interesting kind of form of corruption that's developed. But it's not like FIFA has been the same throughout its entire existence. And I think the fact that it has changed and the fact that the Olympics have changed, you know, the amateur ideal that was pounded on for 
so long and the idea oh we couldn't have athletes that took money that that has changed like in our lifetimes and i think that we can get too carried away with the idea that nothing will ever change you know we had jeremy chapon last week who said oh this fbi thing you know who knows if it'll come to anything if this investigation will come to anything well 14 people were indicted and we were just saying a week ago that that probably wasn't going to happen. And so I think I would just pump the brakes a little bit on the idea that what we see today in FIFA is what we're going to see, you know, tomorrow or in five years. I mean, the the problem is everyone falls back on history partly, you know, before Havelange in the 1970s and before the democratization of soccer and the expansion to corners of the globe that didn't really play the sport or care about the sport. And before the infusion of billions and billions of dollars into the football economy, it was a, a patrician Eurocentric organization that dismissed the rest of the world. So that changed and that changed because of the system that came into place in the 70s and 80s and particularly the 90s after the United States was given and hosted the most successful and most well-attended World Cup on record. Uh, Mike, you mentioned the Japan-South Korea World Cup and the and and the South Africa World Cup. Those there are allegations of corruption around those as well in in yes, terms of vote buying. I know, you know, but but your pessimism and you're you're using the IOC pessimism pessimism and you're using yeah, the IOC a- as a as an example of how we can't reform. I think is belied a little bit by the fact of what happened in 2002 with the Salt Lake City bribery scandal in those Olympics and how that organization has changed from within entirely. No, you know the the track they federation, would never have an Olympics in Russia. The track federation, the places that well, that's a whole separate geopolitical <laughs> conversation about why the Olympics are where they're going to be. But, you know, these other federations are are corrupt as well. And, you know, as much as the IOC has changed and rooted out some of these problems, the reality is that these that these things still do exist. But where there is hope is if you look back at the, the 2002 Salt Lake City Games, one of the most important people in helping to spur that investigation and those reforms was a guy from... John Hancock, which was a sponsor of the Olympics, David D'Alessandro was the the CEO. And he stood up and said, we're not going to do this anymore. And he did this behind closed doors with the International Olympic Committee. And that directly led to the investigations and the, the change that existed. Do any of the current sponsors within FIFA have those balls? I don't know. We're going to find out. Do they have the ability to say we're out of here and we support the creation of an alternative organization and an alternative tournament for men and women, by the way? I don't know. I think we're going to find out. I mean, that would be the the ultimate you know, pie in the sky for people like us who would like to see this sort of low grade global corruption racket be run out of business. But I think it's sad to sit here and say it can't change because it should change and it can change. Well, first of all, I use the IOC to compare them and say the IOC is even more, is better than FIFA, is less corrupt. Here's why, I, I mean, it either will or won't, and whether it's hopeless or not, I think soccer's fun and the World Cup's great, and so you put up with a bit of corruption and you have the World Cup. TV rights are still growing exponentially. People will clamor if McDonald's says, not me, someone else is going to put their hands up. If uh, if Coca-Cola says, not me, I can think of another famous brand of beverage that might put their hands up and mm-hmm. say, yes, me. So someone's going to sponsor it. I do not foresee an area where you have that kind of rights and those kind of interests, especially as American interests grow and grow and grow. I do not see for-profit companies beholden to their shareholders saying, yeah, we all are going to boycott this game. I think with the structure of the votes, with 209 votes, you're never going to get people to vote themselves out of existence. So there's always going to be 209 votes and just a little bit of crumbs to Montserrat. I'm sorry to pick on Montserrat, but uh, Dre Longman in the Times said we should be picking on the Cayman Islands. They are not going to want to fundamentally reform. And I think there can be some window dressings. So the vibe around FIFA, I mean, these indictments are indictments. And so the reform is not going to come for soul searching. It's going to come from people saying it's better not to be indicted than indicted. So these in, these indictments are going to create some window dressing and maybe there'll be a little tiny little bit of rooting out of corruption. And maybe they'll say, 
I mean, I think even without this, people are looking at the Qatar bid as a disaster. I mean, they had to move it from the summer, and that was a huge lie to the winter, and that disrupts schedule. And knowing what we know now, I don't think Qatar would have won even with the bribes. But still, we're talking about up until 2022, right? Seven years from now, we're set in stone where these tournaments are going to be. So that's how much reform are you going to get with Russia 2018 and then Qatar in 2022? You're assuming that every decision in this organization is going to be put to a vote of all 209 members. And that's just not the case. There is no, an executive committee is, here. Right, but the well, but the, bladder is not going to get voted out of office unless he dies. Well, he could actually get pushed out of office by reform-minded people on the executive committee, which is dwindled because their members are getting arrested or getting kicked off. I mean, the, the, it is not a fait accompli that, that this is locked in stone, that there will be a, a corruption-tolerating head of this organization. There are people in this sport, and yes, it's going to lead to, to complaints and conversations that, the, that Western Europe and the United States are trying to bigfoot. I mean, Putin has already done that. But the fact is that those kinds of reforms can occur if the right people stand up and actually try to do something about it at great political risk, at great risk to their soccer organizations in their countries, at great embarrassment. But there's a big ally here, and that's the Justice Department. And I think that you are I think I think to say that, yeah, there might be a couple more indictments might be underestimating the will of the U.S. government to do something about well, it. Does, this. It does make you question, though, because given what we already know about Qatar and the worker deaths there and the horrible human rights abuses. It's hard to fathom if there would be something else that could happen there that would cause public opprobrium to rise to even higher levels because it, it's already happened and, and FIFA has not yet been pressured to you know change the locale. They said there's not going to be a revote. But as you said, there could be external pressure, whether it's from the Department of Justice or it could be internal pressure from the executive committee. But I don't know. I mean, the NCAA is obviously a different animal being mm -hmm. not an international organization, but we've seen in the last year the top schools basically break off into a separate entity within the larger entity. And so, you know, that's something that's that's happened. And as Stefan was suggesting, maybe you could get UEFA, the US, Japan, whoever else, Argentina, to form um, – a group within the larger group. That to me doesn't seem en entirely implausible. Especially when people like Sunil Gulati, the head of the U.S. Soccer Federation, who, you know, has a, a relationship with Chuck Blazer, the guy that got indicted, has obviously been involved in U.S. and CONCACAF, the regional soccer federation, for, for a few decades now. Um, you know, when you have people like that spending their capital to work within the system. And he has tried to work within the system to help the U.S. accrue some credibility and authority inside FIFA. But at what point do people like him at their own personal risk and others in Europe or wherever else say, we can't reform from within. We're done. We have to walk. I mean, it nearly happened with the IOC and it, that did lead to change within the IOC. And I don't see why it's implausible for it to happen here. All right. Hang up and listen. As part of the Panoply Network, here is a word from one of our sister podcasts. Hey, this is David Wallace-Wells of New York Magazine's Sex Lives. I'm here with... Maureen O'Connor. Allison Davis. And this week we're going to be talking about... Allison, what are we going to be talking about? Uh, my new favorite movie, Chocolate City, The Black Magic Mike. We're also going to be talking about uh, ball touching. <laughs> and the panty clearinghouse, sellyourpanties.com. Subscribe at itunes.com slash panoply. Hockey's Stanley Cup Finals start on Wednesday night in Tampa, where the Lightning will host the Chicago Blackhawks in Amelie Arena. Given that locale, I'm expecting a rather twee game one featuring the cinematic stylings of French ingenue Audrey Tatu. I assume that Puck Daddy's Greg Wyshynski sees it the same way, but I will let the man speak for himself so long as he does it in French. And as long as you subscribe to his daily podcast, Merrick versus Wyshynski, which you can find on iTunes. Bonjour, Greg. Bonjour. Uh, actually, I, I much miss the uh, the name that they had previously, the St. Pete Times Forum, because nothing says journalistic integrity like having your name on the team's arena that you cover. I got to go down to the Verizon Center. <laughs> I have no, I have no comment. Um, USA USA Patriot Act Stadium. <laughs> that screams integrity. That pra that practically shouts integrity. 
On Puck Daddy, Greg, you described this as a perfect series. You're not leaving yourself much uh, wiggle room there. Why is this a perfect series? I think it's the classic combination of, of what we expect to see on the ice and then all of the narrative boxes it clicks. Um, you know, on the ice, these are two teams that uh, like to bring it. They're both aggressive. Neither one is the type of team to sit back. So it's not going to be one of these, one of the teams is constantly punching and the other team is rope-a-doping the entire series. It's really going to be two forces coming at each other for most of the series. I think it's going to be great. And then from the narrative standpoint, uh, you have this amazing story of the young upstarts in Tampa Bay uh, trying to begin their run of championships with an incredibly young and great and talented team. Uh, versus the Chicago Blackhawks, who are as close to a dynasty as I think you can get in a salary cap league with potentially three cups in six years. Um, they've got all the guys that know how to win. Tampa Bay's got the guys that are learning how to win. It's it's just really, I mean, it's not David versus Goliath, because I think they're pretty evenly matched, but it's it's that kind of dynamic in the final. Watching the conference finals between the Lightning and the New York Rangers, which was fantastic. I mean, except for the game seven, which was kind of a dud, the two nothing and Tampa Bay really controlled that game, I thought. I'm gonna guess you're a Ranger fan based on some of these comments. <laughs> I might be. I might be. I watched I mean I watched every game of the series though. That was that was great. It was great hockey. Um I was really struck by how fast and how agile the Tampa Bay forwards were, particularly Nikita Kucherov, Andres Palat. Tyler Johnson. I mean, these guys were, I, I didn't know much about this team and I didn't know much about them, but I was really impressed by, by the speed and how, how you know, and, and Chicago's defense is what it's known for. How much of a, of a part of the great matchup is that? Yeah, it really comes down to that, actually. The, the three you mentioned are, are known as the triplets. Steven Stamkos, who is, you know, of course, Tampa's big offensive star, told me he's never seen three players have better chemistry on a line than Kucherov, Palat, and Johnson. Usually you get two guys with great chemistry and then they throw somebody else on the line. He said as a three-man unit, he's never seen a trio work like that. And, and they are a marvel to watch. And these guys are young, too. They're like, they're like 24 years old. And then you've got, you know, you've got this thing with Chicago where they are a team that really is adept at taking away what you do best offensively. So you have a Lightning team that scored 21 of 22 goals against the Rangers with their top six forwards versus a Chicago team that is going to be able to deploy two great defensive pairings and deploy Jonathan Taves and Marion Hosa, arguably you know, two of the top five best defensive forwards in hockey uh, against this offensive collection from Tampa. And, and, and the series could easily just boil down to that, and then the trickle-down from that is, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a push between the top six of both teams, who wins in, in, in offensive depth, then I think Chicago's got the advantage there just by having so many guys that have been in this spot before and because Tampa, frankly, hasn't gotten any, any kind of scoring outside of their top six. Well, one reason for that, at least in the last series, was Lundquist. I mean, both those semifinals were great, the Ducks and the Blackhawks. I mean, what were there? Like, uh, there was one g game that wasn't a one-goal game, and so many of them went into overtime. How many periods of hockey did we have there? Do you know off the top of your head, Greg? <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that the Blackhawks have played a lot of hockey, and I know that Duncan Keith in particular, their star defenseman, I think still has a time on ice average above 30 minutes a game at this yeah. point in the postseason, which is a symptom not only of having played multiple overtimes, but of Joel Quinville, their coach, having absolutely no confidence in their third defensive pairing and overplaying his star D-men as much as he can, which, again, maybe it affects them in the final, or maybe Duncan Keith is just a mutant, and he's able yeah, well, to just and play Duncan, as long and Duncan, as he can without his legs falling off. And the advanced stats say Duncan Keith is the best player in the playoffs. He's the best player left. But let's talk goalies. I mean, it comes down to goalies, I think, so often. Bishop uh, withstood the Rangers' assault. Who do you who do you favor? I think it's pretty even, but I will say this about Bishop: um, he gave up a five spot three times in in the conference final against the Rangers. Came back twice and and was fantastic in the following game. And I think he's done that nine times this season, given up four or more goals and come back and and played really well in the following game the tune of a save percentage of around uh, 938, rather, I think, this season in those situations. But it doesn't change the fact that he gave up five goals three times in the conference final. Tampa Bay, when they're on their game, protects him. 
plays really well around him, as he likes to say, remembers their net in the defensive zone. I think that Chicago feels they can be a little bit more liberal with their play in front of Corey Crawford because of his playoff resume and because, frankly, he's gotten progressively better as the postseason's gone on after a first round where people were calling for Scott Darling to take this charting job for the Blackhawks. So maybe a little bit of an advantage to the Blackhawks because Crawford's been there, but Bishop's been really good in games after he's had a bad performance. So I have some bigger picture questions. You mentioned the Blackhawks um, and this being kind of the closest you can get to a dynasty in the salary cap era of the NHL. And when you hear something like that, it just sounds self-defeating, especially <laughs> for a league like like the NHL, which obviously cost control is an important thing for the league, and you can understand why you would want to do that as an organization. But this is a team, the Blackhawks, that fans have gotten to know over the last six years. Um, it's a team where you know people recognize Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Duncan Keith, you mentioned. Um, and the idea that this is going to be the last opportunity maybe for this team to stay together and, and win a cup, it just seems like that's not in the best interests of the NHL. Well, it's not, but I mean, you're hearkening, you're hearkening back to an argument that we had in, in 2005 about whether it was going to be more beneficial to the league to have a salary cap or have a luxury tax. And, you know, the, the argument against the cap was always, well, when teams draft and develop their players well, they should be able to keep these teams together because ultimately having strong franchises in, in markets that are financially solid like Chicago and New York and, and, and uh, you know, Philly and all these other places is going to be beneficial to the league. Like, it's, it's, it's much more exciting to go into this series and have the Lightning be the upstart and have a team like Chicago as, as, as the team they're trying to knock off the throne versus, say, Anaheim, where it's two teams kind of vying to, to sort of do the same thing. So I agree with you. I mean, I, I like the idea of, of teams being able to stay together, and, and I think that the NHL does some things like giving an extra year on long-term contracts to teams that are re-signing their own star players to that end. But ultimately, it comes down to how you want to spend your money. And in the Blackhawks' case, it's securing Taves and Kane for a long, long time at a high, very, very high salary, doing the same thing with Duncan Keith. And then the, the skill involved in trying to keep this thing going is how you fill in the blanks. After their first cup, they struggled with it. They lost a ton of their talent to the Atlanta Thrashers, pretty much, <laughs> along with the Florida Panthers. Um, and then Stan Bowman, their GM, got a lot better at it and found uh, young players to fill, to fill in holes like Brandon Saad and, uh, and Tara Vine and players like that. And, and I think that he's very adept at refilling the ranks after they have to jettison guys because of the cap. Isn't, isn't the flip side of that conversation, though, Greg, that you to look at a team like Tampa with a lot of young players and you can sort of project out like, wow, this could be a dynasty. So that's, that's the other side of what makes this kind of a salary cap effective in, in, in hockey. Yeah, and, and they're going to have their own issues, too, because Steven Stamkos' contract comes up, of, you know, after, I think, after next season, and he could be the first $12 million a season player in the NHL. That's the max you can make on an annual basis at this point, and there, there's a lot of thought that he could hit that number uh, if he ever went close to the open market. Um, but to speak to the salary cap and, and, and the flip side, well, the flip side, obviously, is that if you're lo- if, if a dynastic team is losing a player, someone else is gaining a player. And in the case of the Lightning, what you saw were the New York Rangers make some pretty dicey decisions based on their own salary cap in the last couple of years. So the Ryan Callahan trade with, for Marty San Luis gets made because they didn't want to pay Callahan. Anton Strahlman uh, doesn't get a contract from the Rangers, goes to Tampa Bay, becomes an, a, a possession monster and makes Victor Hedman one of the best defensemen in the league. And even Brian Boyle, who's a, a solid role player for Tampa and, and was one of their vocal leaders in that uh, series against the Rangers, he falls from the Rangers as well because they don't want to pay him more than they think he deserves for being a fourth liner. So the cap does have that effect, too, where there's a trickle down to other teams. Most of the time, it's, it's teams that are a bit closer to the salary floor, but sometimes it's a team like Tampa Bay that just wants the infusion of, of, of veteran leadership from another successful team to make their team better. You want my prediction? Oh, of course. For the finals, I think Chicago's going to win. You want to know why? Why? They shoot more. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, How do you that, feel about that, that analysis? Thing, but, I mean, as the Rangers found out, the, the Lightning can be pretty adept at blocking shots. Blocking shots. shots. Ugh. That, was, that game seven was so frustrating to watch. As a <laughs> But show. all the advanced <laughs> statistics, you, they're, they're, I love advanced statistics, and with hockey, it's brilliant because you don't need to know that much. You, all you need to know about the advanced statistics in hockey is 
They have a way of counting shots, which is if the goalie wasn't there, it would have gone in. So the advantage statistics say, well, what about the ones that are blocked? And what about a couple of other things, like if they hit the post or go a little bit wide? All right, let's count those two. And the teams that shoot the most win. And this postseason, Chicago's been shooting a lot. Well, it's, well and the flip side of that, of course, is, is suppression of the other team's shots. And that's going to really be the key. Like, in, both of these teams believe their offensive kung fu is stronger than the other teams. I mean... The, the, the Lightning went into every series against Carey Price and against Henrik Lundqvist, the two best goalies in the, um, in the planet, basically believing they could score on them because they scored on, on them in the regular season. And their whole thing was, we know we can score with this collection of offensive talent. It all depends on whether we can take care of our own business in the, in the defensive end. The Blackhawks, I think, feel the same way with Patrick Kane and, and Jonathan Taves and Hosa and all these guys they have up front. They think they can put goals on the board against Ben Bishop. The key is going to be, can they suppress the offensive chances for a Lightning team that, as far as high-quality scoring chances, was among the best in the playoffs coming into this series. So it's, it's going to be that sort of thing. I mean, it's not just putting shots on goal. It, it's, it's not allowing the other team to do the same, and, and both these teams are very adept at it. All right, Greg, uh, you're on the way to Tampa. I am, and, and I come from a, a family of very uh, sweaty people, so I'm not really looking to forward uh, to entering that sauna. You're a Schwitzer. You're Schwitzer. Uh, Tampa Bay. If you run into uh, French film director Jean-Pierre Genet, tell him I'm a big fan of City of Lost Children. Thank you. Uh, what about <laughs> Alien Resurrection? Big fan of that, too? Uh, just City of Lost Children. <laughs> Stick with that, and we'll be good. <laughs> All right, sir. The Schwitzing Vyshinskys. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, and by the way, boys, uh, Blackhawks and six is the call on my end. It's the call. Okay. Because the call has more. been made. They shoot more. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, boys. The Nationals' Bryce Harper returned to the lineup on Sunday after a brief absence due to back soreness, going 0 for 2 and Washington's loss to the Cincinnati Reds. So why are we wasting our time on a guy who did not even get a single hit in an entire nine-inning baseball game? Well, Harper did hit 13 home runs in May. He leads the major leagues in homers, walks, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, wins above replacement, and a bunch of other offensive categories, and he is a mere 22 years old. The most amazing fact about Harper's youth via a baseball prospectus is that in his entire professional career, majors and minors, he has yet to face a pitcher who is younger than he is. We should also note that Harper has very interesting hair. Um, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as the next LeBron best prodigy in any sports since LeBron at age of 16. Um, his superstardom seemed inevitable, and the fact that he is now a superstar at age 22, you'd think that it was a smooth path. But as of uh, as recently as last year, there were calls to send him to the minors. He got benched for failing to run out a ground ball. Um, Mike, what do you think of the career arc of Bryce Harper and where he's at right now? The problem with saying that about a baseball player as surefire a prospect as and then comparing him to a basketball player is that baseball is an accumulation of really fine skills and also with the game of basketball if you have a flaw or two in your game there are many other ways to cover it up you are the author of your own fate in basketball sure the defense can do some things to take options away from you but then you can express if you want to shoot in a certain way it is your choice so offense in baseball is defensive in offense you have to go by what the pitcher offers and for a while there was you know he had a huge flaw in his game he couldn't hit especially outside breaking balls and then and 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 this happens i mean when we rate a guy as a can't miss prospect in baseball if he's a pitcher there's always health problems to think about and then we're going to talk about Strasburg and if those are the reasons. But with a hitter, you have to be perfect. So no one ever knows if an 18-year-old can cover all parts of the plate and can do so with power and can do so against Major League Pitching because that person will have never had to have faced Major League Pitching. And it's not analogous to uh, an offensive player in basketball having never faced, you know, NBA-level defense. It's, it's not analogous. So what Bryce Harper d- has done might not seem as amazing as all these can't-miss prospects. But it can't, there's much less certainty with a can't-miss prospect in baseball. And what he really has done is to turn especially parts of his plate that were the great weakness into a great strength actually has been amazing. And uh, if he doesn't play so hard that he gets hurt, he will be, you know, a generational. Can I use the cliche? He'll be a generational player. We forgot the good Nat, bad Nat theme music. Mm-hmm. 
We forgot the good night, Matt, bad night theme music. Oh, that's good cute. Good night, <laughs> bad night. We just got done talking about the good night. I don't think we're quite done yet. The, no, no. You, men- you mentioned the, the health issue, and he has been injured. Um, he had a knee injury from running into a wall. He had a hand injury, which kind of took away a lot of his power. And I think people were misinterpreting the post-injury right. performance as true ability. And only hit, 13 said, ro- only hit 13 home runs last year. Yeah, he's got more this year than he did all of last year. Right. But Harper, in interviews this season, says, it's not that I've improved. It's that I'm healthy. And you can understand why it would be beneficial for him to think that way, even if it's not necessarily true. I think he's a player who had preternatural confidence. And I think as a baseball player, you know, this was the thing in in Moneyball, right? Like Billy Bean explaining a Lenny Dykstra was great and I wasn't because I just thought too much out there. And Lenny just like went up and hit the ball and thought he was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it seems like Bryce Harper has no shortage of confidence. And now he finally has the health and maybe he has improved with his patience at the play with his ability to hit outside pitches that those things are, are matched up now. He has the confidence and the ability. And I think there's something else, too. I mean, in addition to his swing rates declining and the number of pitches that he's taking increasing and the n- number of walks going through the roof, and there's something else here. And I think, it's, I think it's simply age and maturity. I mean, the human brain doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s in most people. And when he came into baseball at a very, Except very for Mike young Trout. age. His- and Mike Pesca. Mike Trout and Mike Pesca, their brains both developed earlier. Both fish-related mics, yes. But, you know, he exhibited, if not signs of immaturity, well, signs of... I don't know, immaturity, I guess. He just <laughs> didn't seem to really focus. Great, great, he, great contrast thank there. You. He did things on the field that that contravened what his manager wanted him to do, running into walls. You know, his very first at bat in the major leagues was a, a, a one-hop, I think, grounder to the pitcher, and he ran it out as if he could actually beat it out and did that thing where you lunge at the last second to touch the base. And where a lot of guys twist their ankles or get hurt. I mean, it's a risky, it's a risky move. And he, you know, at some point it kicks in that I do need to do things that will help me become better by preserving my health or playing more intelligently. And that intelligence is probably emotional intelligence. It's maturity. It's his brain forming in in, in an adult man. Yeah, he cut out the kind of performative hustle that's right. not actually it's performative. It's it's not um to make your game better, to perform better. It's to show the fans or show whoever that you're trying as hard as you possibly can. And that was kind of part of his persona along with the eye black and just the idea that I'm this old school player who plays harder than anyone else. And, you know, the fact that he's toned that down does, I think, show an intelligence. And then maybe we can transition to Bad Nat here, Mike, because um, with Steven Strasberg. Bad Nat, Bad Nat. <laughs> who invited you to sing the Good Nat, Bad Nat theme song? I'm just singing the Bad Nat. Speaking of co-opting, there have been questions about, and we can insert the various cliches, his makeup, whether he... Too much has, mascara, I think, <laughs> problem with his makeup. Whether he really has the, the chutzpah to play. That's You just hear the announcers talking about chutzpah <laughs> yeah. constantly. Yeah. <laughs> whether, whether he has it to be a major league pitcher. And this is a or guy is he who... Or Flashugana. This is a guy who's got amazing statistics until this season. Now he's on the disabled list with a neck injury. His ERA is over six. But even when he was performing well, Strasburg, the number one overall pick, similarly touted prospect as a pitcher to Harper as a hitter, just there was just a kind of perpetual dissatisfaction with him. So can you put your finger on the assessments of Strasburg and where he is now? The fascinating thing is, in contrast to Harper, where Everything that I was saying about the ability to hit breaking balls and everything that you guys were saying about the mental maturity, it's it's all flows together. So the general, the mental maturity, convinced uh, Bryce Harper. I think it wasn't just a physical skill. It was like, Bryce, here's what you have to do. Here's your approach against the, your kryptonite. He turned his kryptonite into his yellow sun. It's now his greatest advantage. But and, and it was clean and there was a clean line and we understood how it happened and it happened exactly how it was supposed to happen. Now, with pitchers, there's a little more mysticism with pitchers and we're not quite sure how the, the arm works or we're getting we're not quite sure how injuries happen. We have a general sense, but we're not quite sure. So we thought the only thing that could trip the guy up was injuries. Right. And they I'm going to say coddled him. I'm going to say one of the most 
overcautious, I don't know, stupid, I don't want to use pejoratives like that, but holding him out during a playoff run, I think will be looked upon in years to come as well. Maybe the kindest thing will be, we didn't know about arm injuries then what we know now. We thought it was just an innings count. But that said, it is confounding why Strasburg is so bad. Now, maybe the neck injury has caused performance what we see in his performance, but he's the kind of guy who, and this isn't, you know, my observation. I listened to uh, the Effectively Wild Baseball Prospectus podcast. They've had a great episode on Strasburg. Seems to be finding the middle of the plate a lot, and there's a question as to why, but he used to be a guy who could put the ball exactly where he wanted. Now he's the kind of guy who puts the ball exactly where hitters want. There are projections about how well a guy can do, Pagoda pro- Pakota projections, and there's like, well, the 90%, there's uh, nine, it, it, him outperforming his expectations would have this guy winning a Cy Young. But the 10%, in other words, it's plausible, but only a 10% likelihood, is exactly where he is right now, and that's without a major injury. Maybe the neck thing is accounting for everything we've seen so far, but he is so much worse than anyone thought he could be without a major injury. He's just having a bad start to the season. I mean, it's only a few starts. And if you look at his record, you know, age match to other pitchers, it's like what Tim Lincecum was at that age, Josh Beckett. And these were guys who didn't just go on to become great pitchers later. Like these were pitchers who were seen, perceived at the same age to be outstanding, to be the best pitchers in the league. Like his career stats as of at least the time that this uh, Washington Post column by Tom Boswell was written was, you know, 46 and 35 with a 3.24 ERA. Those are great numbers. And so I think that there is an issue of expectations here being the number one pick and not only being the number one pick, but being touted as the best pitching prospect in a generation. And I think it's also the perception that, you know, he had to miss a lot of time with an arm injury, as you referenced. But the idea that he was getting by just on talent, the idea that he was just throwing 100 miles per hour, and that was the only reason he was getting guys out, which is certainly not true. But I think it just goes along with the reputation of being a phenom. And it's the same with with Harper as well. But just the the idea that we're not as patient with bumps in the road, that we are more likely to see a dip in performance as reflective of either a weak character or just that we overhyped the player and they were never as good as we thought of in the beginning. But we've seen pitchers, you know, you could name Tim Lincecum. He's obviously had more long-term success than Strasburg has winning Cy Young Awards, but that guy is not a good pitcher anymore. Um, Justin Verlander has had huge dips in his performance, and you've seen pitchers that were coddled and pitchers that weren't coddled who've gotten hurt. The only pattern that you have really with pitchers is that they get injured and that their performance fluctuates, and it's the exception when that doesn't happen. Well, and the other the other thing to think about in terms of a good nat, bad nat, is that the, their personalities are diametric. I mean, they are their opposites. I mean, Strasburg was media shy, was very sort of sullen in appearance, very keeps to himself, um, no sort of demonstrative behavior on the field, no eye black, no clown question bro type stuff. And I think that piles on when when you get injured. Um, as pitchers almost inevitably do. And that just adds, you know, more paragraphs to the assessment of a pitcher's character in, in Strasburg's but they both, case. But they both irked character. the media. They both irked the media and fans, but just in different ways. Yeah, but I think that the fact that Strasburg isn't really communicative about his about his performance, about how he pitches, about why he pitches, about how he approaches his job, G- about his injuries. Gives you the injuries, sense that he doesn't care. Gives you the sense he doesn't care, which, which is ne- never obviously had with not Robert. right, which you never had with Right. But all of that, none of that's untrue. And yet, if we were to talk about Strasburg as will, you know, sometimes we call them arms, right? We have a lot of an arm out of the bullpen or we have good arms in the starting rotation. Well, just think of this guy not as a human, but as an arm and his arm still pitching the fastball. But, you know, it's the combination of pitches and he's just fallen off on his changeup so much. Is that because of what's going on in the head, or does has the arm changed? I don't know. He is a worse pitcher where it doesn't seem like it's because of injury. And if you're saying it's because of something mental, yeah, maybe, except maybe it's not. 
They're, for all the comparisons to Lincecum with his crazy delivery and how does he do it, it's not surprising that, well, I think the surprise of Lincecum was when he was good. You know, it's like, how is this guy so good? Okay, he's so small. Look at his stride. We figure out ways to figure it out. With the, the question with Strasburg is, why is he so bad? And maybe it's a mental process leading to this changeup. But which it's just was such once. a small amount of games, right? But when you, when you are a guy, look, it comes down to quantifiable stuff, right? And if the guy used to, I think that if the guy used to pitch 97 and now he's pitching 91, we could all say something's wrong with his fastball. When it's a different kind of pitch, it's not a number like that. But if we could apply that pure empirical metric to the changeup, that has happened. It's fallen off a cliff. Actually, changeup would be good if it fell off. A cliff. But, but <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I don't. Want, I don't want to go on too long here. But maybe could it be that just we are quicker to go to psychological reasons for pitchers than for hitters because we're just talking about how Harper was so bad last year and that, um, you know, now that he's so great, we've decided, oh, it's because probably he was hurt. But I don't think anyone was thinking that it was because Harper's, like, mental makeup. Maybe it was because of the performative hustle that we talked about before. But I just think with pitchers, you're just we're just so quick to ascribe things to mental reasons when, you know, given how long this guy has been really good, like not even just really good, like great. He's been one of the very best pitchers in Major League Baseball. Like should we maybe give the guy the benefit of the doubt that it's maybe a physical issue? Maybe Sure, maybe we'll sure, but wrong, what does that but... mean? I mean, if, if we're the Nats GM, we're not looking to deal him. We're still, we're worried that we signed him to such a long-term contract. If you and I are betting, what's he going to be by the end of this year? Is his ERA going to be two and a half next year? Maybe you'd say yes. I'd, I would say yes with much less confidence and not just based on the fact that he hasn't done it, but based on the fact that there's this fall off without real explanation. All right, let's move on to afterballs and... You did an afterball a few years ago, Mike, on the inverted W. Yes, which I call the M. <laughs> I think we just need to give more publicity to the inverted W, which is the kind of form that certain pitchers use. And um, there's been some speculation that it causes arm trouble, which Mike talked about. Um, Mark Pryor used the inverted W. Mark Pryor, the dreaded Mark Pryor, number one overall pick who succumbed to arm failure. But inverted W... Some people, like Mike, think it's an M. I just feel like we need to call it the inverted W. Respect the arm shape. Respect the pitching motion. Mike, what is your inverted W? Or well, I'll, just take, I'll just take off from the inverted W and why it's called the M. So, so if you don't know what it is, look, uh, take your elbows and point your elbows towards the sky. And a lot of pitchers pitch like that. And they have that high, if they're a righty, their back elbow, if they're a lefty. Well, it's still their back elbow, just the left one. But the part, the weird thing about the whole notion of the inverted W being a problem, the front part of the inverted W, really the M, just that, that's never a problem. So <laughs> you could keep that at your side if you wanted to. That front elbow isn't causing problems for your back elbow. Anyway, these are some of the things I think about during the sport interregnum. June is supposedly the best era, the best month for sport because we have NBA finals and NHL finals and baseball and probably no one got arrested or kicked off a team in the last six days in the NFL and maybe a triple crown is on the line and yes it is, but this weekend was bad because the NBA playoffs, the semifinals ended early because the NHL playoffs, there are a couple days until them because there's a three-month uh, wait between the Preakness and the Belmont. So today, tomorrow, before all the sports and yesterday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, especially for a New York sports fan, terrible, absolutely terrible. Why? What about your locals? Well, the Mets and the Yankees, I don't know that I've seen this before, are both on the West Coast. So you have two games that don't start until 10 o'clock at night. So for anyone wanting a decent sleep, and I understand staying up late to watch the end of the NBA Finals, really, you're going to stay up to watch the end of the Padres against the Mets? Uh, I guess, uh, you know, Thor's pitching, so maybe you do. But it's a, it's a sad period. It's a sad two days for the New York sports fan. It's almost like the All-Star break. So I started looking around for other sports. Do you know in the New York Times, they list all the sports on television, and when they run out of sports to list, they do this? Apparently, there's an under-20 soccer championship going on, and the United States is playing against New Zealand. Stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning at Fox Sports 2 to catch that game. Already took so out Myanmar, dude. 
Myanmar, the former Burma? Yes. Yes, all right. Took him out. So Myanmar has gone down. It's really good that we could beat up on a uh, country that doesn't allow its players or people free expression or to travel outside the borders. That said... I've been searching for a sport to get behind, and I think I found it. I don't know if it's a sport. It's a guy. And I don't know if I like his game, but I like his name, Jack Sock. Have you talked about Jack Sock on this program? Um, he's, actually down, he's actually down two sets to none to Nadal as we record this podcast. Not that I was looking at the live French Open scores while you were talking. Yeah, and Nadal, who is supposedly his game is slipping. And maybe it is, but maybe that will only show up in when he faces Djokovic. Anyway, Jack Sock. Think about his name. It's either the coolest name in sports or the lamest name in sports, and it all depends on the sock. In fact, the Jack modifies and amplifies the sock. So if we think of the sock as kapow, a Batman sound effect, this guy is awesome. And in fact, he's jacked up with the amount of socking he's doing. You can't find a better first name. If the guy's name was Punch, Jack Punch would be great. Jack Slap, Jack Kablooey. That is the greatest name ever. But if we think of sock like the sad garment worn over a foot, that is really lame. Especially sock, like you're a sock puppet or you're the one sock that's lost in a dryer, just naming someone after an article of clothing. And then the Jack becomes like a nursery rhyme, Jack. Jack Spratt could eat no fat. Jack Sock could not block Rafael Nadal's attempt to win another French Open. So Jack Sock, it could go either way. You are, in fact, a uh, nomenclatural Kuleshov effect, which is the uh, Russian director who said that it's the juxtaposition of images that get, that gives them their import. If Jack Sock wins, we'll all be saying, Jack Sock, that's so cool. And if he loses, Jack Sock, no better than Jack Pantyhose. There's also a very gross interpretation of his name, which I will leave to the listeners to fill in the, the mental bla- <laughs> bl- blanks on. Um, yeah. Stefan, <laughs> what is your inverted W? Well, four weeks ago, I promised that the next week I would bring you sporting news from the New York Times of Saturday, April 8th, 1893, that was even bigger than the 110-round boxing match between Andy Bowen and Jack Burke that I discussed. This story is chock-a-block with color, controversy, lively writing. I wish W.C. Hines had been there to cover it. It was a little before his time. Headline, Captain Brewer's fine shooting. He easily defeats Thomas Peacock in a live bird match. 50 ardent lovers of pigeon shooting traveled through the slush and rain to Dexter Park on the Jamaica Road, Long Island yesterday to witness the live bird match between Captain Jack Brewer and Thomas Peacock, which wound up the three days shoot of the Interstate Manufacturers and Dealers Association. The conditions of the match were 30 yards rise and 50 yards boundary. Pigeon goes up 30 yards into the air. There's a 50-yard field. We all know. know. I'm sorry. I just felt like I had to elaborate. Captain Brewer was to shoot at 100 birds and Mr. Peacock at 104. I'm not sure why the difference, but whatever. The shoot was for a wager. The amount was given at various figures. Members of the association who were present said it was $100 a side. Others said it was for $500 a side. But when the principals were asked about the amount of money involved, they showed a marked reticence in answering and declared that they didn't know how much it was after the match. When Captain Brewer was declared the winner, he stated that he had been given $1,200 by the stakeholder. Let's pause here for a second. $1,200 seems like a lot of money to shoot pigeons in 1893, does it not? I've got my inflation calculator up. Okay. I got uh, $31,139.40. Pretty good payday. When the shooting began at noon, the small crowd of spectators were huddled around the stove in the gun room like so many sheep. They would rush to the two small windows when a trap was pulled, but would immediately seek the stove again when the bird was brought down. Captain Brewer started the ball rolling by bringing down a fast left quarterer. He killed 40 birds in succession, but his 50th fell dead just out of bounds. Mm. Peacock's work was not so good for out of the first 50 birds, he lost three. On the 75th round, tension rising, both men made shots for which they had good cause to complain. Brewer shot first and brought down a towering right quarterer. The bird was as dead as a stone before it touched the ground, but the strong wind carried it just over the 50-yard boundary line, and it was lost. Peacock's luck was still worse. 
He made a hit at a straight outward driver, which fell dead with its head over the line. There was some discussion for a few minutes as to whether or not the bird was lost. But the rules of the association showed that the bird must be counted lost. Seriously, tough break for Peacock. Dead pigeon's head just over the line. Our correspondent, I think, did a fantastic job of conveying that heartbreak. One more paragraph to go. By this time, it was getting very dark, and the work was telling on the eyes of both gunners. Brewer had lost four birds, but all had been killed and fallen out of bounds. When the match ended at 6.15, the score stood Brewer 96 and Peacock 87. Tough, tough. Coda, did you know, Josh, that the sport of pigeon shooting dates to at least the 1700s in England? First apparent live bird shooting contest in the United States, 1831 in Cincinnati, probably using passenger pigeons, which went extinct in 1914 due to overkilling. State championships sprung up. Pigeon shooting became, as the time story indicates, popular among gamblers. Pigeon shooting was contested at the 1900 Olympics in Paris, where 300 birds were killed. Way to go, Olympics. But the invention of clay targets, protests among naturalists, led to the sport's demise. The last U.S. championship was held in 1902. States gradually began outlawing pigeon shooting, according to an article on the website of the Pennsylvania State Sportsman's Association. For many of the great pigeon shooters, their income was greatly reduced. They could Mm. no longer make money and an affluent living in the pigeon rings across America, traveling in lavish railroad cars, dining on the best food, shooting the finest shotguns and living in the best hotels was over. Now, I quote the Pennsylvania website because while states did begin outlawing live bird shooting, the Keystone State has hung on as the only place where pigeon shooting remains legal. Opponents have tried to ban it, and they've had some success pressuring its decline. The uh, Sportsman Association website said the most popular modern shoot was held for more than 65 years, but the liberals succeeded in shutting down the shoot several years ago. The website says the liberals shut it down? The liberals <laughs> succeeded in shutting down the shoot several like, years ago. I like this website. Legislation to ban pigeon shooting in Pennsylvania, first introduced in the 1880s, finally looked like it was going to be enacted last year, but lobbying by, guess who, the NRA managed to So we can do a hang up down. and listen pigeon shoot in Pennsylvania. Yes, we can. What's the date? Let's set it. Let's set the date. All right. Tomorrow. I looked it up. Question, do peacocks actually consume pigeons? <laughs> Answer, peacocks are ground feeders that eat insects, plants, and small creatures. No, they're not raptors. Didn't think they were, but they're not. Josh, what's your inverted W? That peacock name was a bit on the nose. It was. The beak, if you will. <laughs> we all know about the Harlem Globetrotters. They entertain fans with a repertoire, including trick shots, fancy dribbles, occasionally eating a basketball that's made of bread. You don't want to break that one out too much. What I didn't know until a few days ago is that there's a guy who brings the same sort of spirit and goof-offery to tennis. His name is Mansoor Barami. And in a 2010 New York Times piece, he was described as having a comedic sense that's part Buster Keaton and part Globetrotter great Meadowlark Lemon. As that Times piece by Jeff McDonald explains, Barami is from Iran. He claims to have learned to play tennis with a rusty old metal frying pan. Not just any frying pan, a rusty <laughs> frying pan. He quickly mastered the game, becoming a member of the country's Davis Cup team in the mid-70s. But tennis, a decadent Western practice, was banned by Ayatollah Khomeini during the Islamic Revolution. Barami was not allowed to play the sport for more than three years. In 1980, in a move that seems like it's out of a draft of an inspirational sports movie, the Iranian government decided to organize a single tournament called the Revolutionary Cup, where the prize for winning was a plane ticket out of Iran. In the final, (laughs) it just seems really like short-sighted on so many different levels. But this happened, according to things I read on the internet. Um, In the final, Barami played his friend and compatriot named Ali Madani. And although Barami was the Gael Monfils of his day, a player known for his shot-making and creativity, but not so much his ability to win close matches, did come out on top that day, Barami did, winning in three sets. So he took his plane ticket, he went to France, and he never uh, went back, at least for many years. He stayed in the country uh, of France even after his visa ran out, becoming a tennis-playing illegal immigrant. When he qualified for the third round of the French Open in 1981, French newspapers took up his cause, but it wasn't until he was 30 years old in 1986 that he got a visa that allowed him to travel, and he was able to join uh, the Pro Tour full-time. Barami did make the French Open doubles final in 1989, 
Um, but he's had most of his success on Tennessee's senior tour, where he can goof around and un- unleash his full arsenal of trick shots. You should check him out on YouTube and watch him serve while holding six balls in his hand. He uh, fakes overheads and hits the ball off his head instead. He can catch a ball in the pockets of his shorts, a, ball, a lob. It's impressive. Um, Big if you, pockets? Normal-sized normal size pockets? human pockets. If you want to learn more, he has an autobiography called The Court Jester, which he talks about his career and his relationships with other players. FYI, Eli Nastasi, greatest pickup artist he's ever seen. The New York Times piece also tells the story of Ali Madani, the man who lost in the final of that tournament in Iran in 1980. As of 2010, Madani lived in Massachusetts and taught tennis, but wondered what might have been if he hadn't lost that match and um, he was forced to stay in Iran, he told the Times, we both lost a lot of time, but Mansour got to France and kept playing. I had to wait two more years and my chance passed me by. It's hard to lose your dream without getting to try. So I pretty lighthearted after ball, but I just want to end it on kind of a down note because that's just what happens in life. That's good. I sometimes, like, I like the after ball. sometimes you're a Barami and sometimes you're a Madani. The dark turn. But let's end it on an up note with the question of does he also use a tennis ball that he takes a bite out because it's cake. <laughs> I have not seen that, but um, we need to get him, that, suggest him get him that message. Cake tennis ball. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. Oh, uh, wait, can, Josh, can I interrupt? Uh, yes, you can. I, I just want to compliment you. You often will highlight the insanity of something related to sports in the way you slowly let it roll around <laughs> your mouth as you say it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, no. No. <laughs> You it's will an unconscious arch an eyebrow. You will give it a eyebrow. little zest. And I've just come across in the an last... An arched ten, uvula. Yeah. In the last 10 minutes, such a fact. Are you ready? I'm ready. So Johnny Manziel has been said to have thrown a water bottle at an autograph-seeking fan. No charges were brought. But the Irving, Texas Police Department describes the water bottle as a large bottle of Deja Blue, three-fourths <laughs> full. Can you say that in your way? A large bottle of Deja Blue, three-fourths full. Very good. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern, her first week this week, is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember, Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.